0: Wisdom, despite our distraction. Might your word be conviction to those of us who are proud, grace to the humble among us, peace to the hurting, hope to those who fear. Open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to receive the word that you have for us today, that you have prepared for Aaron to speak to us. Thank you for his preparation and commitment to your word and to this church and encourage and strengthen him as he speaks to us by your Holy Spirit's guiding. Would your word have its intended effect on us and would we not walk away from here unchanged? We thank you, Jesus, who you, Father, have established as our God, as our great high priest, and as our king over all of creation. And it is in his name that we pray. Brandon. good morning, Karis, good to see so many of you today. Um, how many of you all like riddles or brain teasers or tough questions? I see some hands. Uh, I think you might have fun today. Last week, I was hanging out with a few guys. Uh, we got a fire pit going, cracked open some cold drinks. Dished up some leftover shrimp scampi to eat around the fire. And there's a bunch of leftover shrimp scampi someone had. (laughs) And we just sat around the fire. We talked about um, the Bible. We talked about theology for a few hours. It was great. One person would say something, you know, hey, I learned this from a recent sermon. They'd offer their opinion. Uh, Then someone else would maybe push back a little bit offer their thought, offer a little bit of a different take. Uh, then we just follow that rabbit trail for a while. Be like, yeah, you know, that was a good point. What about this example, Genesis? Have you thought of that? Okay, yeah, that makes sense. But we can't forget about this version of Romans. Okay, say more. It was, it was just a good night of dudes being bros, uh, discipling each other, how to think more critically and reason from the scriptures. And um, I a member, a friend of mine in our church uh, told me recently you know, this is nothing new. This is something that goes back in history, uh, all the way back to Jesus' time. The Pharisees, rabbis would get together, just go back and forth and argue and debate and talk. Um, in fact, one of my favorite passages from the Gospels, is when Jesus and the Pharisees go back and forth with each other in riddles, asking each other riddles. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see the same scene play out where the Pharisees, you know, they approach Jesus, they challenge him with riddles three. Uh, Number one, they say, does the Torah really say that it's okay to pay taxes to the Roman Empire? Good question. Definitely not going to be a sore subject for the crowds listening in. Second riddle, a woman marries seven brothers during her life. Which one of them will be her husband in the resurrection? Darren actually talked about this question a little bit last week, so if you would like to know a little bit more about that, just hop on the website. and we'll in listen to last week's sermon. Uh, and then finally, the third riddle for Jesus it Jesus, out of all six hundred and something laws they got to us, which one is the most important? Which one? This interaction, uh, honestly, it almost reads like a uh, you know Batman versus the Riddler comic or movie. Jesus is way too clever. He's way too smart for these guys, and he answers all their questions with. Insight, conviction, challenge, and grace that only Jesus can have. But the scene's not over. Now it's Jesus' turn to ask for real. He looks at the religious leaders and he says, You guys have read Psalm 110, right? Okay, good. Y'all say that the Messiah is going to be David's son. But David calls him Lord. So how can he be his son? The way Mark tells this story, you know, the crowd hears this response. They hear this riddle. They're loving it. Everyone's like, oh, he went there. The way Matthew tells it, he says, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. You're not going to outriddle Jesus. You're not going to be more clever than him from that day. No one wanted to play a riddle games with Jesus. So the crowds loved that Jesus shut up the Pharisees. And truly, no one could figure out the answer to his riddle. But they kept thinking about it. They couldn't stop pondering and puzzling over this riddle. They thought about it constantly. How do I know? Because in the rest of the New Testament, this psalm is the most quoted psalm in reference to Jesus. Psalm 110. Pastor Kevin preached several weeks ago about how the whole Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. And perhaps maybe few other passages besides this one point us to Jesus more than Psalm 110. So let's dive into the psalm. I want us to see what David saw and hear what David heard God say about the Messiah. As we read through, from David's perspective, God is going to tell us that becoming Messiah, he'll be a king and a priest. And then David will prophesy that the Messiah will be a conqueror and a judge. As we continue to meditate on this passage together, examine other parts of scripture, we'll see that Jesus is our victorious priest king. Who will rid our world of evil and empire so verse one this is a verse that Jesus references right off the bat it's a verse that can be confusing based on how it's worded verse one says the Lord says to my Lord the Lord says to my Lord and we'll see that word Lord pop up a lot in this passage so right from the beginning let's clarify these words. If you're looking in your Bibles, you'll notice that that first Lord, it's capital L and then in small caps, O-R-D. That means that we're talking about God by its covenant name, Yahweh. But out of respect for the name, the copiers and the translators, they decided to just put the Lord in there. So for us this morning, when we see that word Lord, with the small caps, I'm just going to say God. And then there's the second word, the mystery Lord. This character who David refers to as Lord, but who's also distinct in some way from God. The word Lord, without the small caps, is just another word for King or Messiah. So, again, for clarity's sake, that's how I'll refer to this character. This character is at the heart of Jesus' riddle to the religious leaders. Because in the pecking order of authority in Israel, it goes number one, God, number two, the king, David, especially David. So, Jesus asked the religious leaders, Do you think you're so smart? You know the Messiah is supposed to be a descendant of David. Descendants aren't greater than their predecessors, typically. So how can David, number two, he's the king. How can he say someone else is his Lord that's not God, as he's referring to him? There's a rhythm. If we reread this verse with the, the words Lord clarified, it says something like this. God says... To my king, sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Where's this all go? What is David saying? He's saying that God's Messiah, his anointed one, will be a king. And not just a king, but a king who's greater than Israel's greatest king, David. A king who God shares his own throne and authority with the right hand. Darren talked about the right hand as well last week. So, do you know when the apostles finally figured out this rule? Uh, it wasn't until the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. Spirit comes down, fills the apostles, and Peter preaches the first ever gospel sermon. Here's a part of that sermon. It says... For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord says, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Finally clicks. The spirit comes down. It illuminates the minds and hearts of the disciples. Like, figured out Jesus' riddle. This psalm is all about Jesus, and the first thing we need to know is that Jesus is our king. We talk a lot about king and kingdom at cars. Uh, if this is your first time here today, uh, we're actually taking kind of a week off from our sermon series through the book of Matthew. Uh, we've been calling that sermon series, Our King, His Kingdom, because those are some of the central themes through the book of Matthew. But it's important always, and again, that we clarify how the Bible talks about kingdom. That way we don't get confused with our preconceived notions. A biblical scholar that I've read a lot, uh, his name is Scott McKnight. He does a survey in one of his books where he concludes that the biblical concept of kingdom has five elements. Five elements. This is what he says, and he's getting this from the whole Old Testament. Law, the prophets, the Psalms. He says kingdom means one, a king, two, a rule, three, a law, four, a land, and five, a people. King, a rule, a law, a land. The people. So in the Old Testament, that looks like this. David's dynasty ruling as kings by the Old Testament law throughout the land of Israel over the people of Israel. And then we move in to the New Testament. As we discover the identity of Jesus, it looks like this. King Jesus, a son of David ruling as a king by his own law of love over uh, throughout all creation, over all people, but with a unique relationship towards those who have given him their allegiance. And that last one is important because it's common that we use language like accepting Jesus into our hearts, accepting Jesus, the Savior and Lord. But to be honest, kings aren't accepted. They're acknowledged. And the allegiance that is due then is either given or it's not. Look back at our, our passage in verse 2. The Lord, God, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Notice the fact that There are enemies, those that don't want to accept this king, don't want to acknowledge this king. But that doesn't affect at all his command to rule, because that's what kings do. They rule. Happy Fourth of July weekend also. (laughs) Jesus, God's chosen Messiah, is king. And his rule is, at this very moment, A universal reality, regardless of how we feel or respond. Now, Jesus would like us to respond and feel a certain way about his kingship. But how we feel, how we respond, doesn't change the fact that he is king over the universe right now. He rules through his own law of love. A yoke that's easy and light. And he even helps us bear it with gentleness and though he rules over everywhere and everyone he has that unique relationship with his people those who joyfully given him their allegiance who've put their faith and their trust in him i promise we'll come back to verse three later because it kind of informs how we apply this passage but jesus is our king secondly jesus is our champion let's look at verses five through seven together the lord the messiah is at your right hand he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath he will execute judgment among the nations filling them with corpses he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth he will drink from the brook by the way therefore he will lift up his head so, for a lot of us here, this, these verses probably seem kind of extreme. Shattering kings, executing judgment, piling up corpses. These are verses that may have us feeling a little bit uncomfortable. You might be thinking, um, you know, what about all that stuff that we've been reading in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the meek, merciful peacemakers. I've mean, even been reading ahead. What about non retaliation? What about loving your enemies? If that's what you're thinking, then I'm glad because it means you're paying attention. And sometimes paying close attention will get us into situations like this where we have two parts of Scripture that we have to hold in a little bit of tension while we seek to understand them. I said that our, our second point is that Jesus is our champion. What exactly do I mean by that? Probably most people know the story of, of David and Goliath. Even if you've never read your Bible, you've probably seen it as a Looney Tune cartoon or a Simpsons cartoon or something like that. Puny little Israelite shepherd faces off against a literal giant, a Philistine giant. You ever notice that no one ever calls this? The battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. Because, I mean, those are the two sides. Those are the rival nations warring against each other. But the way they often did warfare back then was each group would send out their champion, their strongest person, to represent the whole group. If you read through the story of David and Goliath, you'll kind of see the terms laid out. Your guy can defeat our guy, you win, we'll be your slaves. If your guy defeats our guy, you win, we'll be your slaves. For us, our champion is Jesus. Jesus is the one who goes out on our behalf to shatter and to judge and to pile up. He does it so we don't have to. He does it because we're not called or equipped to do it. He does it because he's the only one who's qualified, because he's the only one who can judge perfectly and impartially with justice in all things. So you're right to notice a little bit of tension. It's the same tension that Paul actually speaks to in Romans, where he writes this. He says, repay no one evil for evil. Sounds pretty free sermon on the mountain. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Be peacemakers. Be beloved. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you he will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus leads us by example. But not everything that he does are we called and equipped to do as well. And this is a perfect example. In fact, Paul says it's the justification. Behind Jesus' commands to you know, everything he says in the Sermon on the Mount, we can face persecution. We can make peace. We can respond to violence in a nonviolent way. And we can love our enemies because Jesus is our champion. Because he's the one who will one day judge justly and the one to whom retribution rightfully belongs. Let's keep looking. The Messiah is not just on some kind of random rampage. He's on a mission. The purpose of this war waging is to finally, once and for all, rid the world of evil and empire. Look at these phrases. Shatter kings. Judge the nations. Shatter chiefs over the wide earth when verse 2 talks about ruling in the midst of enemies, well, these are the enemies. And this is how they have to be ruled. Allegiance must be rendered. Rebellion must be crushed. More specifically, the Messiah is putting a final end to empire in our world. What do I mean when I say that? Like we talked about a minute ago. We use the word kingdom a lot. We talk about kingdom, king. When I say empire, what I mean is anti-kingdom. An empire is any institution, worldly, spiritually, both, that demands our allegiance that we rightfully owe to King Jesus. The empires of this world are inherently set against the kingdom of God. And so on the day of Jesus' wrath, They must be shattered. There's no place for them in Jesus' kingdom because they are inherently rebellious. They idolize violence and power, and they use those things to fill our world with evil. So as our champion, Jesus will go out on our behalf to rid the world of evil, rid the world of empire once and for all. He'll make the kind of world where AR-15s are not used in another school shooting, and where four steps aren't used in another abortion. All tools for violence will be shattered, smelted down, repurposed, never to harm someone again. And then he drinks from the brook before lifting up his head. Church, the only thing that could stop or postpone Jesus' mission is him stopping for a drink before pushing forward to fulfill his calling. When that comes to empire, that means that no prime minister or president or party, no chairman or congress or court, and no dictator, no chief or emperor can stop him. It's also why, as we read in verse 3, I told you we'd come back. As his people, we can offer ourselves freely. We can focus on being faithful and not just effective in the eyes of the world. We can give our time completely to prayer and lament. We can give our resources completely to vulnerable women and children. We can give our own lives to protect those who are in danger we can do this because his success is certain and assured. so Jesus is our victorious king and last but not least he's our priest, our high priest maybe you were thinking Aaron why are we going out of order why would you talk about verse 4 after verses 5 through 7 and actually that's a really good question and I'm going to try to explain without getting really nerdy. The way this poem is written is that it's structured kind of like a sandwich. The first three verses and the last three verses, they mirror each other. They're the top and bottom buns of this sandwich. Let's compare them on the screen. Verses 1 and 5, they go together. God says to my king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 5. The Messiah is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of wrath. that parallel of the Messiah being at the right hand. Verses 2 and 6. God sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Skip down. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Like we noticed a second ago, verse 2 tells us the Messiah will rule his enemies. Verse 6 shows us the enemies and how they're defeated. Then lastly, verses 3 and 7. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. We have this parallel between the dew and the brook, these images of refreshment and invigoration. If you like a five-dollar theological word for the day. This kind of writing is what's called a chiasm. A chiasm. Now, why am I saying this? What's the point? Well, number one, my dad always told me, it's always better to know something than in this to not know something. <laughs> number two, this is a really common way that the biblical authors write. And so when you're at home studying the scriptures by yourself, use this as a tool. Sit down and read through the Psalms. Wait a second, it, there's a sandwich here. Yeah. And number three, the purpose of the whole sandwich structure is to draw our attention to what's in the middle. That's the highlight. That's the, that's the main focal point. This isn't a sandwich with a lot of ingredients. Two buns, first four in the middle. We've got both of those. And don't hear me hey, I'm taking this for granted. The top and bottom buns, these are vital ingredients but they're drawing us to focus on the meat of the passage. Verse 4. So let's read it again. The Lord, God, has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's plenty that we can unpack here. Let's start with Melchizedek. Who or what is a Melchizedek? (laughs) Melchizedek is a guy who pops up in one other verse in the Old Testament prior to this. We read about him in Genesis 14. It says, after his, this is Abraham, after Abraham's return from the defeat of the (laughs) Dorlaomer and the kings were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba. That is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. That's it. This is the only reference to Melchizedek until we get to Psalm 110. But we do learn two important things. Number one, he's a king. Number two, he's a priest. He's one of God's priests even before the people of Israel exist. It's just Abraham at this point. No Aaron, no Moses, no Levites, nothing like that. Somehow we have a priest to God. Let's remember what, what that role is, the role of a priest. Priests facilitate worship between a group of people and God by offering sacrifices on their behalf. We don't Did you read any of the details? But Melchizedek did that in some mysterious and magnificent way. And in Psalm 110, God says that his Messiah, Jesus, will be an even greater priest than Melchizedek. And he'll be a priest forever. The book of Hebrews, if you've read the book of Hebrews, the writer loves Psalm 110 can't turn a page in Hebrews without seeing a quote from Psalm 110. He picks up on this theme over and over and over. Here's what he says in chapter 7 about how Jesus is going to be an even better priest. He says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he has always lives to make intercession for them. This passage is telling us Jesus is the better priest, number one, because this priesthood will never end. We'll never have to get another priest. He'll be facilitating our worship forever. And because he offers a better sacrifice himself, he can save us completely and for all time. When we began this morning, uh, we talked about the riddles between the Pharisees and Jesus. Jesus says, I am both David's son and David's Lord. Who am I? The answer to that riddle is Jesus. A descendant of David, but at the same time, God himself taken on our humanity. As we close, I want to leave you guys with some more gospel riddles. Number one, I wield a scepter in Zion, but instead of a staff in my hand, it's a spike in my wrist. Who am I? I execute judgment on the nations while the empire sentences me to death. Who am I? I serve as both eternal priest and the final sacrifice. Who am I? If you've been following along in our passage, you probably already know the answer to these riddles. Jesus, the king, is the one who rules by serving others. Jesus the champion is one who conquers by surrendering himself. Jesus the priest is the one who offers his own life so that we can become members of God's family. Taurus, this is the gospel that Jesus is our victorious priest-king who will rid our world of evil and empire. And when we turn away from our sin, renounce the empires that we've built, and offer ourselves freely to him, he rescues us, brings us into his family, and into his kingdom. Let's pray. victorious conquer to bring peace to our world for an eternal priest that will always bring us close to you God fill us with your Holy Spirit this morning let's not leave this place with hard or selfish hearts but let's offer ourselves freely to the service of our Savior and to the people in this world that he's called us to love Lord, as we continue to worship around your table, um, grant us unity by your spirit and of one another. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.